The date is Friday, June 12th, and you're listening to Entertain This, a thought-provoking podcast encapsulating all things entertainment. Join us this week as Alex takes us on a bizarre journey into the play Waiting for Godot, and where we all try to discover the hidden meanings behind its craziness. Enjoy! Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Entertain This! Entertain This! As always, I'm Alex. I'm Michael. And I'm Nick. Guys, today I finally get to put my two years of theater degree to work. Wow, this is the first time ever? (laughs) This is the first time (laughs) ever. Note I said two years of theater degree and not my theater degree. Um, It's close enough, whatever. But either way, we're, we're diving into one of the great mysteries of theater, the famous Samuel Beckett tragic comedy, Waiting for Godot. Waiting for Godot. Uh, I will just say full disclosure, I warned both of you last week that we were going to be looking into Waiting for Godot and uh, mm-hmm. told you that you should probably look into it because this episode isn't going to be a convince you to go seek out Waiting for Godot, though if you haven't seen it, I hope that I provide enough context um that you're able to keep up as well as want to go and um consume this uh this show but i did ask you guys to go ahead and do that that way um you had some idea walking into this what exactly it is um Mm -hmm. because it is a confusing it's a confusing uh meal to take in if you yeah, would. as someone who as someone who's only read like the synopsis, I don't know what's happening. But yeah, and there's good. It's it pretty cool. There's good yeah. reason, um, which we mm-hmm. will get into. Um, and I don't want to waste your guys's time yet asking what you know about the play because the general consensus from scholars and average Joes alike is that we know nothing. It's absolutely just as much as you do. It's absolutely mm-hmm. nothing. Um, so much so that the fact, or so much so that the play is famously known as the play where nothing happens twice, mm-hmm. as many people twice. call it. <laughs> but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so uh, we're going to start, as I often love to do, uh, with the amazing writer who penned the work we're going to talk about today, which is Mr. Samuel Beckett. Uh, I'm going to give a little context, kind of like how I did in the Spider-Man episode. I feel like context of a writer is important when looking at their writings mm-hmm. um, because there's that famous rule in writing that you write what you know. So yeah. if we know what the writer knows, then we can start to understand what exactly they were writing about in circumstances like this. So Yeah, it's like it's like the whole thing with like Hemingway's works become a lot more meaningful when you learn that he actually lived through the war and was like injured in a hospital yeah for many years of it so and you can get into that kind of frame of mind when you're looking into their work and especially with this Mm -hmm. one that's you're gonna have to be in beckett's head to understand kind of where this is coming from but yeah for sure uh beckett was born in dublin on april 13th in 1906 the becketts were members of the angelic church of ireland providing a young samuel beckett with a strong religious background a detail that'll come into play later Beckett had a nice childhood in his family's large home surrounded by a garden overlooking the Dublin countryside. Often Beckett would take walks with his father through that very countryside, the nearby Leopardstown Racecourse, a local Irish horse racing venue, the Fox Rock Railway Station, and Harcourt Street Station, 
at the city's terminus of the line. Uh, the walks and locations would often be the inspiration of the settings of Beckett's later prose and plays. So immediately looking into the background, we're met with um, a fair assumption as to what we're dealing with as to where this play takes place. Yeah. And so was it just like a thing back then to have like local racehorse like tracks? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. <laughs> I was raised in Kentucky, so there's not much yeah. that I can say <laughs> when it comes to having local race horse or race racing horse tracks because we still do and are very yeah, proud of fair. it. Bluegrass State, y'all. But just another interesting fact that doesn't have to do much with his writing. Um, Beckett was a natural athlete and excelled at cricket as a left-handed batsman and a left-armed medium-paced bowler. He even placed, or he even played two first-class games against Northamptonshire. As a result, he became the only Nobel Prize winner to also have played first-class tennis. He won the Nobel or Prize? Or cricket, rather. Yeah, he was a no, well, he wasn't a Nobel Peace Prize winner. It's a Nobel Prize in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, but he I did like win that. one of those. Nice. So as Beckett grew up and um, went to college, he studied French, Italian, and English at Trinity College in Dublin from 1923 to 1927. Uh, he would later return to Trinity College as a lecturer in the 1930s, to which he resigned the following year, bringing an end to his brief academic career. After that, Beckett traveled throughout Europe. He spent some time in London continuing his study of literature for only two years before tragedy struck. His father had died. Following his father's death, he began two years of treatment with Travistock Clinic uh, psychoanalyst Dr. Wilfred Bion, who is actually really famous in his study of um, the two different frames that the mind can be in. Basically, he's one of the people who like started the study of the left and right brain. You know, as people always talk about, like, I'm left-brained, mm-hmm. I'm right-brained. Like, I lean more into emotion, mm-hmm. I lean more into logic. That was kind of where his study showed. He, like, helped start that idea in psychology. Um, yeah. You're bringing in all this psychoanalyst stuff, which is interesting because that's a particular realm of psychology. I don't want to say it's dated at this point, but there aren't a whole lot of people that are psychoanalysts actually around. Yeah. And I noticed from taking a couple classes in psychology, these guys are a little... Oh, out there when it comes to study of the brain. Oh, yeah. They make a lot of assumptions, not a lot based on science, but a lot based on just case-by-case study and finding the similarities between people. But this is yeah. where, this is who Beckett trusted his mind with, were people who were studying stuff like this. Um, okay. <laughs> and a lot of that um, kind of studies and understanding into human psyche later became evident in his writing, such as Waiting for Godot. I see it now. Something to keep in mind. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So now I want to make something clear. Samuel Beckett was a soft boy poet, but he was also a badass. And in 1938 in Paris, Beckett was stabbed in the chest and nearly killed when he refused the solicitations of a notorious pimp who went by the name of Prudent. (laughs) Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Yes, there is. But this is what happened next in his life, so it's important to go over. Um, the, plubis- the publicity surrounding the stabbing attracted the attention of Suzanne uh, Dietschvox Doomsnil, which I probably mispronounced because no, it sure was difficult. Um, but that is who uh, Beckett slightly met on his first day in Paris. But 
because of this and because of their meeting again, he would later marry her in 1961. They began their partnership in this hospital room. Hmm. But, but check this out. At the pre- preliminary hearing, Beckett asked his attacker for the motive behind the stabbing, and Prudent replied in French, I do not know, sir. I'm sorry. And Beckett dropped the charges against his attacker. Just dropped him. Dope. He okay. said, yeah, he said it was partially to avoid having to deal with the legal system anymore and partially because he thought Prudence was likable and well-mannered. Okay. Well-mannered enough to stab a man. Right. right. But <laughs> and then, also snitches get stitches. But then he said right. he was sorry. So <laughs> Beckett was like, you know what? He said he's sorry. Let's let him go. All right. <laughs> Works. And that's just kind of a a couple of the things that led him eventually um, to the rest of his life, wh- to which he further proved his badassness. Um, and I will show you examples of that through this pertinent information. Um, so after the Nazi Germans' occupation of France in 1940, Beckett joined the French resistance where he worked as a courier. In August of 1942, his unit was betrayed, and he and his now-girlfriend Suzanne fled south on foot to the safety of a small village of Rasulian. Not to mention that he was often tracked by the secret Nazi military police that existed, Um, and he was almost constantly being hunted by them. But when he eventually made it to Rasulian... He continued to assist the resistance by storing armaments in his backyard. He also indirectly helped the Maki, a rural guerrilla band of French resistance fighters, sabotage the German army in Vaucluse Mountains. So this writer decided that he was going to start forcing his way kind of into the French resistance against Nazi Germany. And in doing so, he wasn't a soldier. He was a civilian who helped a band of guerrilla French resistance fighters sabotage the German army. That's pretty cool. This is after Samuel Beckett got stabbed by a pimp and let him go. (laughs) (laughs) What a life. And it's also important to remember that France gave up their army. Yeah. as, As part of... Um, you know, kind of aiding and abetting Hitler. They're like, well, we don't want no trouble now. You can go ahead and take our army, which is why the French resistance had to step up to the to the plate. Right. Do and, everything they can to stop the advance to Britain at this point. And let me remind you, he's not even French. He's Irish. He's right. just here living here. <laughs> he's but just he, along for the ride. He's joining he walked the into resistance. World War II. Congratulations. Right. <laughs> and so here's something interesting. Because of his work with the French resistance, Beckett was even awarded French military decoration by the French government for his efforts in fighting the German occupation. All right. So now he's go. now he's a decorated war veteran. <laughs> and he referred for, He referred to for, his go go ahead. For a country that he wasn't even Right. Like that 
He wasn't even from there. He wasn't even crazy as all get out. He was just in the right. He was in the right place at the right time, and he decided to make the right calls. Yeah. It it almost plays out exactly like Forrest Gump. (laughs) Strangely enough, it's funny. But he later referred to his efforts in life and with this resistance as nothing more than Boy Scout stuff. That's what he saw Excuse it as. Excuse me? And he rarely <laughs> talked about his wartime work. That we know of. That Gosh. we're able to confirm. He rarely talked what? about it. What a badass. Right. He did all this stuff, and then he was just like, ah, it was just Boy Scout stuff. Like, it's no big deal. I did it because I felt Nazis. like I should do it. <laughs> no, it's just Boy Scout stuff, tying knots and whatever. Yeah, but, okay. You know, he was fighting Nazis. Yeah, delivering letters to you whenever. Yeah. And it's believed that four years after the Germans were forced out of France, Beckett began writing En Attendant Godot, which is French for Waiting for Godot. Mm. Um, Translated to English from its original French, Beckett's own translation is what we now read in English. And it wasn't until he translated it over to English that he gave it its famous subtitle, which is A Tragic Comedy in Two Acts. Huh. Now we're, what? now we're getting into the meat and potatoes of this. Now, mm. only only 13 minutes in, and we finally get to get to the main course, which is the play. And we can start just by that subtitle. He defines it as a tragic comedy in two acts. Now, Why is it a comedy? I plan to... Walk us through the plot of Waiting for Godot for listeners out there who are unfamiliar, just so that they have enough information to kind of keep up with the conversation that we're going to have. Um, okay. But he calls it a tragic comedy. And this is, this play was uh, first premiered in the United States, I believe, in 1956 in Florida. Um, but it was written and finished in 1948, and that's where it premiered in France. But around that time, uh, you have to think popular culture. Um, and if you just look at any pictures from Waiting for Godot, it's almost obvious that the main characters, Vladimir and Estragon, are based very similarly to vaudeville acts uh, of the like of Charlie Chaplin. Mm. And there are a lot of stage directions that I won't talk about when going over the plot shortly, um, but there are a lot of stage directions that involve pratfalls which is a pretty famous vaudeville stunt where basically you fall over as a gag. Like something knocks you over and it's funny because you fall over, you fall into something, you knock something down. And that was kind of Charlie Chaplin's staple thing. And it's supposed to kind of give off the energy of that vaudeville act where things are happening so fast and constant and things are happening that are kind of dumb. And you think that's funny because... That's how vaudeville works, you know? It's Slastic, so yeah. right. It's so over the top in what it is that it's mm-hmm. laughable. But it's not a comedy. It's a tragic comedy. Because at the end of the day, um it was sad. The things that it was going over, or at least in my opinion, it was mm-hmm. it was meant to be more than just a comedy. And obviously, Samuel Beckett agrees. Yeah. So this is where our true adventure begins. Because to understand the context of Waiting for Godot, we must first understand a movement in writing that occurred post-World War II Europe. 
Uh, this designation is referred to as theater of the absurd. Are you guys all right. at all familiar with that term, theater of the absurd? Only from what you've told me about it. Sure. Do you just yeah. kind of what you remember? Do you want to rattle it off? So it's the whole idea of uh, taking like taking like something simple and turning it on its head and turning it into like an entire situation that just gets more and more out of hand. Yeah. So uh, you kind of lose yourself in how wild everything is. Um, it's absurd. But a kind of straightforward definition is um, it's a work that often focuses on complex ideas of the human experience that were difficult to verbalize, um, mm. often using allegory and metaphor to represent complicated topics and ideas. Gotcha. So things that you couldn't just verbalize, emotions, feelings, um, a, a state that you find yourself in, uh, those are what Theater of the Absurd tried to visualize. And it it's one of those things where it takes something that is so personal that you can't talk about it with anyone else, and then it puts it on the stage. Hmm. Kind of in some crazy and difficult ways to follow, which you'll see here coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll entertain it. You'll entertain this. We're a little late, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is this is where my interest as you may have guessed comes into play i am big on finding out the mysteries of things and trying to figure things out and putting pieces together i love physical puzzles not so much jigsaw puzzles but for sure physical puzzles um mm-hmm. that have a solution that you need to get yourself to I mean, that's why I did an entire episode on ARGs. And it's almost kind of like that, but in writing and 50 years ago, because nobody knows what this play is about, for sure, because Samuel Beckett never told anyone. Um, but a lot of these writings leave it up to the audience to assign meaning to the chaos. They just watched unfold in front of them. Beckett especially loved to remain cryptic about his writing, confirming, um, or never confirming exactly what waiting for Godot was meant to mean. But that's my goal of this episode of the podcast, is to try to lay out the groundwork and maybe figure out once and for all what is going on in the play where nothing happens twice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this it, it kind of seems like this is what Beckett ended up wanting people to do, is theorize and try to figure it out, because like that's part of the whole human experience is trying to is like observing the things around you and trying to interpret it in a way that makes sense to you. Funny yeah. that you say that because there's something that comes along with that experience of trying to figure something out and it's communication. It's hmm. if I have an idea of what something's about, I'm going to come to you and be like, "Here's my idea." That's what we're doing right mm. now. And yeah, it's that coming to you with that idea and you bouncing it back at me. Um that's kind of what Beckett wanted. That was what this was all for. But the first gotcha. step to understand at face value what we're looking at um, is to just read the play. And the first thing that the play says to us, uh, it, it, it describes the setting. 
And I wrote down a note of exactly what the setting is, just so that you can understand how simple Beckett was when giving any stage direction for this. And he describes it as the following. He says, a country road, a tree, evening. And that's all you get. As a director, (laughs) that is all that you're given. (laughs) That's all you need. It's so simple, right? Just a country road, a tree, evening. And we never get a scene change. They never go anywhere else. All they have is a country road, a tree, and you know that it's evening. Not even night, (laughs) just evening. And this isn't even like a translation issue or anything. This is just exactly how he intended it. And you know that it's not a translation issue because Beckett himself translated it. Right. He's the one who made it into English. So I'm already confused. <laughs> it's a confusing thing to to put a a play in just I mean, people put plays in just one place all the time, but never that simple. There's not furniture mm-hmm. to interact with. There's nothing but a tree. And famously, there's a mound or a rock of some sort that is usually yeah. added in, but that's just for them to well, like. It's, like. it's like the ambiguity of it is what gets me because then every single director has their own interpretation of what that scene is supposed to look like. But mm. it's hard to interpret more than what's given. That's right. the key. Which, it means something. It means that if that's all he's giving you is that it's on a country road there's a tree and it's evening that mm-hmm. those must be very significant or else he wouldn't have yep. given you anything at all. Yeah. It's like but the whole idea behind what Chekhov's gun. Is that what it's called? That is an idea in theater um, that if you see a gun in the first act, it has to be used in the second. And it's, right. it's generally the same thing. If basically what you're saying is if he mentioned it, it's because it's important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the English teacher's wet dream in a way. It's kind like, of. <laughs> here's here's just a couple things, and now I want you to take it and run with it. Have an entire class, have five classes on it. Well, that's the yeah. thing, Nick, is that he doesn't want you to run with it. He wants you to understand that all you have is a tree. But a tree is a metaphor, Alex. Maybe, but that's up to the director or whoever's mm-hmm. reading the play to understand. He doesn't want you to add in a bunch of other things. He doesn't want you to add in a barn or another room or a chair. He wants you to know all you have is a tree, and there's a reason, and we'll get to that. But okay. given Beckett's many walks with his father, it's easy to place these characters somewhere on the Dublin countryside. Um, so you guys kind of have an idea of what Ireland countryside mm-hmm. looks like. If you've seen anything that takes place in Ireland, it's beautiful out there. Um, A lot of hills, a lot of grass. Um, Yeah. I've seen the look of the Irish. Yeah. Is it bad to compare this to Windows XP uh, screensaver? Like the background? It's it's a lot like that. It's very interesting that you say that because that is kind of the idea that you're given. Um, Knowing that he kind of places it in Dublin, that's what he probably had in mind was something very similar to that. Um, but at least that's how I imagine it, is that it takes place on the Dublin countryside because that's where he grew up. Um, mm. And throughout the two-act play, as I said before, we never leave this tree. This is where we are for the whole show. Mm. Um, so the cast is limited to only five characters total, and that's Vladimir and Estragon, 
are two leading men who we watch throughout the play, Pozo and Lucky, two traveling strangers whose paths cross with our leading men, and a boy, a messenger sent by Godot. And though we never see them, there's also mention of the boy's brother and, of course, Godot, who, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, we never see. <laughs> the namesake character. Sorry about that. <laughs> Not there. Just immediate spoiler <laughs> alert. We never see Godot. It's famous for that, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but that brings our grand total up to seven characters mentioned. So now that we have the setting and the characters out of the way, we can get into the plot, or as you may find out soon, the lack thereof. Um, and doing this, I'm just going to try to get through it as much as possible. Uh, so bear with me. This is for anyone who hasn't read Waiting for Godot. If you feel the need to pause now and go listen to it, there is a great recording of Waiting for Godot on Spotify, as well as, I believe, an entire recording of some film adaptation of Waiting for Godot on YouTube. Both are things that you could watch right now, and then pop back here if you want to have a little more context into what we're about to talk about. Okay, here we go. As the show begins, we are introduced to Estragon, or Gogo, as he is often called, um... Gogo is attempting to take off his boot, but eventually gives up, exclaiming there's nothing to be done. Enter Vladimir, or Didi, uh, as Gogo calls him. Uh, Didi agrees that there's nothing to be done, but he does celebrate the return of Gogo, and greets him like an old friend, but Gogo does not return the sentiment. So already we know that these two know each other. Mm Mm-hmm. And they've known each other for a long time, and at some point, they separated, but now they're back together. Another kind of important thing to note at this point um, is the desperation that Gogo is going through to try to take off his boot, and he's unable to do it. Everything matters. (laughs) So we learn that they have only been separated for one night, a night in which Gogo spent in a ditch at his own accord, Didi shocked by the condition of his dear friend. Um, he simply asks, did they beat you? Gogo confirms that, of course, they beat him without informing us of who they are. We just know that he spent the night in a ditch and that he was beaten. Hmm. And then he came back and they're back at the tree. Already we can see a clear kinship between these characters. They take on almost a younger and older companionship. Vladimir being the wise protector, and Estragon being a young, naive fool. It's important at this point to point out um, that they are dressed in a certain way, and they both are wearing old, worn boots, and many productions of this play have them dressed tramp-style Charlie Chaplin Chaplin era vaudeville clowns, which we have gone over. Mm. Um, But something interesting is that Beckett has been quoted in saying, I'm not sure exactly what they're wearing, but I know Vladimir and Estragon were wearing bowler caps. Okay. Another another weird moment where Beckett is so specific about this one thing. Yeah. The hats play a major role in the next part. Finally, at this point, Gogo is able to take off his boots and searches inside for what hurt his feet. He finds nothing. And at the same time, Didi tries to explain a feeling that he has. Every time that he's at a loss for words, he takes off his hat and he taps the crown. He searches inside for whatever's keeping him from speaking, 
places it back on his head, and then finds the words he was looking for, which is something strange. Mm-hmm. Eventually, after one of these kind of fits, uh, he lets out, one of the thieves was saved. It's a reasonable percentage, which is interesting. Uh, we're about to get a little religious, just as a fair warning. He is referring to the story of the crucifixion. The two thieves that were crucified with Jesus Christ. While hung and everyone mocked Jesus, one thief joined in the yelling and started yelling insults. And the other said, don't mistake him. He is the son of the Lord. Please tell God I was good to you. And that thief was saved, but the other was damned in hell. As I said, this isn't a religious podcast, but I have to tell the story because it's important in deciphering this play. So the two begin questioning why, out of all of the books in the Bible, only one of the books mention the thieves. Um, The rest of them either only mention one thief, or they don't mention the thieves at all. And they make that clear when talking about this story. And they finally rest on the conclusion that the testimony wasn't wasn't viable evidence, so they move on, leaving that story behind, to continue distracting themselves. Gogo finally speaks up and asks why they are unable to leave where they are. And Didi replies, because we are waiting for Godot. And in that moment, we face, there it is, uh, (laughs) exactly what they're doing as they stand in this almost nothing with this tree. They can't leave because they're meant to meet Godot here. They're waiting for Godot to show up. Throughout a majority of the first act, we watch as Gogo and Didi try to keep themselves occupied. Gogo asks Didi for a carrot, which Didi produces, but he warns it's the last one. The two wonder if they should hang themselves from the tree, but decide that it's too risky and may not kill them both, leaving one of them to wait alone. All along the way, Gogo repeatedly asks if they may leave, only to have Didi remind him that they're waiting for Godot. And on it goes for a while. All right, all sensible. All yeah, nothing out of sorts there. Well, there are a couple of interesting little tidbits in there. The yeah. they argue over as he pulls the the carrot out. They argue over whether or not a carob or a carrot and a turnip are equal, or if um, eating a turnip is as good as eating a carrot. And Gogo demands that he has the carrot because he prefers the carrots. And while eating it, he says it's a shame. Because as I'm eating it, it's getting worse and worse. The more mushy it's getting near the end. And Didi says, for me, it's just the opposite. I get used to how bad it is as I go along. Which are, Carrots are delicious. Talking about the carrots, which is interesting. How dare they? It's just something to, to think about as we're talking yeah. about this. But another interesting conversation they have is about them hanging themselves on the tree. They're like, we could hang ourselves. And this is met by Didi saying, it would give us an erection. And he says, an erection, as like excited. Like, this would, this would bring us excitement if we were able to just hang ourselves. And they go, then let's do it. And he goes, all right, you go test the branch. And you go hang yourself. And then after you've hung yourself, I'll hang myself. And Didi being, or Gogo being the lighter of the two, says, you should hang yourself first. And Didi says, why would I hang myself first? And he says, well, think about it this way. If I go hang myself, I'm lighter than you. The tree hangs me. 
I die. You go to hang yourself, the tree breaks, you live. But if you go hang yourself and the tree breaks, then we both stay alive and neither of us have to be alone. All right. And this is all coming off of a conversation about vegetables. It's weird, right? And it's (laughs) random and crazy. And you're left just wondering what the hell you're watching. Like, what the hell did they just talk about? Like hanging themselves, about, and they decided yeah, not to because for entertainment. What but the hell? They decided not to do it because it wasn't convenient. Huh. Isn't that crazy? Works for me. Not because they don't want. Not because they don't want to die. They didn't do it because it wasn't convenient at that moment to do it. And they bring it up multiple times later. They say tomorrow we'll bring a rope. If we have a rope, we can both do it at the same time. That's brought up multiple times in the play. Um. But at that point, enters Pozo. We hear Pozo before we see him. He is loud and commands attention. But first enters his slave, Lucky, with a rope tied around his neck. Lucky is too skinny and sickly looking. And he doesn't speak so much as pant like a dog. He is barely clothed in loose rags and chains and carries a lot of baggage to which he never puts down to rest. Followed behind him is the luxurious Pozo, who parades his name around, and he is surprised to find that Gogo and Didi haven't heard of him. They don't know who he is. He takes a moment uh, examining our leading men before deciding that they are men, like himself, and were made in the image of God, as he says. And he decides he's going to rest for a moment to enjoy their company as he's been on the road for six hours. He says, looking at his watch, yes, six hours. Gogo immediately mistakes Pozo for Godot. Um, and for a moment, DD2 is contemplating the idea. But as Pozo confirms that he isn't the man they're looking for, DD quickly jumps on the knowledge as though he already knew it. Pozo asks that if they run into Godot, they should let him know, because he also would like to meet Godot which is interesting, and we'll come back to that in a second. But after the conversation, after they talk about Godot, the conversation slowly leads to Lucky. Vladimir and Estragon question why it is Lucky never puts down his bag, and Poza responds that Lucky wants to impress him so that he will keep him, claiming that Lucky is wearing down and will soon need replaced. Pozo decants on the good old days when Lucky could think and would teach Pozo many beautiful thoughts, but now Lucky was unable to do that. This caused Lucky to slowly start to weep, and when Estragon goes to comfort him, Lucky kicks him in the shin and returns to a tired, blank stare. What the hell? That's what you're asking this entire show. Yeah. What the hell? What the hell is going on? Who is Pozo? And something kind of interesting to note is that when Estragon asks, is this Godot, Vladimir doesn't know. He doesn't know if it's Godot or not, because neither of them know who Godot is. They just know they're waiting for him. Hmm. And now Pozo is waiting for Godot. Pozo is stopping for a second, but he okay. does want to meet Godot. But he's not, like, actively waiting for him. No. 
but he is interested in the idea of a Godot. So still curious, and for their own amusement, they request that Pozo have Lucky think, and in doing so, they open a can of worms that's kind of hard to describe verbally. Pozo produces Lucky's hat, and he places it on his head. So we're again seeing this connection between having conscious thought and wearing these hats. Which this Team Fortress Two? What is this? Becomes more and more evident. <laughs> it's it's just interesting. I know, and something to think about. And my plan is after this whole plot is laid out to start analyzing it, which we're gonna do. And I'm sorry if I'm just leading to more and more confusion. But take notes of the things that I tell you. Okay. When allowed his own thoughts, Lucky very eloquently talks himself in circles, referring to everything from religion to sports to philosophy, but is stuck in a panic on certain things like tennis and God. Until eventually Arcas wrestles the hat off of Lucky and he once again is left a thoughtless slave, his hat lying center stage. With that, and a bit of a fight from Pozo, himself and Lucky leave, leaving only Vladimir and Estragon once again to entertain themselves. So the hat thing seems pretty clear at this point. Yeah, and the hat stays on stage. Lucky's hat does. Oh, okay. And you're right. At this point, there's clearly something to go with this hat. We've at least made that much ground that when you wear the hat, you're able to think freely. Mm-hmm. Or the hat represents your ability to think for yourself. Huh. Which in this moment is made clear. So it doesn't take long before our final character we meet arrives. He is known only by uh, a boy and is a messenger from Godot. He informs them that Godot won't be coming today, but surely tomorrow if they wait. And we learn that the boy and his brother work for Godot, one herding sheep, the other herding goat, and that Godot beats the one who herds goats, or who herds sheep. The boy is the one who herds goats. Is that confusing? Yeah. That felt a little confusing. Yeah. <laughs> so who, who gets the beating? The, the sheep herder or the goat herder gets the beating? Which one? The one who herds sheep, who is the brother of the boy we meet, herds sheep. Yes. This is what this, this, is what this play does to you, man. So the, the, one, the, one who gets, the one who gets beat is not the boy who delivers the message. Correct. Okay. And the okay, one who cool. gets beat is the one who herds the sheep. The boy... The sheep herder gets beaten? Correct. The boy, who is the messenger, herds goats. Okay, I think I got it. But I'm looking at this from like a religious kind of metaphor, just because you brought it up in the first place. A lot of people do, which we will get to. the sheep. Um, It's interesting. As I've said... Probably about, if you take a shot every time I say it's interesting in this podcast. I will be dead. You are 100% (laughs) sure to get slammed at the very least. He tells them that Godot won't be coming today, and then he leaves as night falls. And our two leading men decide that they too should go. And though they agree, they do not move. They go, we should leave. Yeah. And then they don't move. And that's the end of Act 1. Okay. All right. So is that the tragedy or the comedy? Or is it 
I don't know. <laughs> the tragedy is they don't have a house. <laughs> One. I mean, it's all, it's all tragic, and it's all, it's a tragedy that is delivered in a comedic fashion. Yeah, because I've got a few okay. ideas at this point of what I think might be going on. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's be like Groundhog Day. <laughs> act Act Two. I was able to explain much quicker than Act One, so let's get into that. Act Two almost copies Act One with a few differences. The tree. Once bare, now holds five leaves, specifically numbered five leaves. None of the characters remember the events of Act 1 except for Vladimir, and to a very slight extent, Estragon, though he forgets a lot. Like, he doesn't remember who Lucky is. He doesn't remember who Pozo is. And he doesn't remember what they did yesterday or how long ago it was that they met Lucky and Pozo. Though, Vladimir swears that all of this happened yesterday. Okay. Is he wearing his thinking cap at this point, or no? Yeah, he is. They all are. Huh. Pozo returns, though now he is blind, weak, and has no memory of Didi or Gogo. He asks for assistance getting up after falling to the ground, and pulls both the leading men to the ground, where they too are unable to get up. Is this, uh, is this like a Life Alert commercial? <laughs> it, it kind of plays out a lot like that because they've Help, all... Help, I've fallen! <laughs> it's, it's exactly like that because they all three end up falling and they can't get back up. I mean, each for their own reason. Um, Pozo can't, just physically cannot get up without assistance. And after being pulled to the ground, Didi and Gogo both just decide it's easier to just lay there and to not bother getting up. Just huh. to lay there. And it gets to the point where Estragon or Gogo just falls asleep. And Vladimir is left to wake him up. And eventually the two of them are able to pull themselves both back up from the ground. And they Wild. find their way to their feet. Okay. I keep forming theories and they keep getting like shot down. Like with every paragraph of this, you know? It's interesting. There it is again. Damn. Another shot. Um, but after that, Pozo and Lucky both leave. Um, there's a short part that I didn't talk about where, uh, as a kind of exercise to entertain themselves, uh, Vladimir suggests that they pretend to be Pozo and Lucky and that Estragon play the part of Pozo while Vladimir plays the part of Lucky and... They're unable to do it because neither of them can command the other one. And at this point, while he's trying to figure out what's going on, Vladimir does this hat kind of cup ball act where he takes off his hat, hands it to Estragon, picks up Lucky's hat, puts Lucky's hat on his head, takes off Lucky's hat, takes Estragon's hat, put Estragon's hat on his head. Estragon puts Vladimir's hat on his head, holding Lucky's hat, takes off Vladimir's hat, gives it to Vladimir, and it continues on like that until eventually Vladimir throws his hat away, puts on Lucky's hat, says that he's going to keep it, and Estragon puts back on his hat. And from that point on, Vladimir is now wearing Lucky's hat. Okay, okay. I guess that's significant. Any change in like his personality or... His personality doesn't change. Okay. Walking on my own shoes. 
Similar. Something like, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it is also important to note that Estragon left his boots on the stage in the first act. And when he comes back on the second act, he doesn't recognize the boots. He says that they're not his boots. And Vladimir says, well, you're not wearing boots. So if they're not your boots, try them on. Maybe they were left by the last guy whose boots were too tight and maybe they'll fit you. And so at the beginning of the act, Estragon puts the boots back on. The same ones that haven't moved out of the audience's view. And he says they fit perfectly. And he wears them for the rest of the show. What could it mean, man? It's interesting. What could it mean? Another shot. <laughs> I did it again. God, I feel like that dude from the Aliens meme. Like, I just... <laughs> bo- both hands. Just like... Yeah, just... I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. Aliens. After I finish this whole, like, plot summary thing, I'm going to ask you both what you guys think is going on before I go into what I think, and I'm really excited to hear what you think. Okay. So... It's devious. Pozo... Yeah, Pozo returns... Lucky and him go off, and the boy returns once again, and he tells strictly Didi, or Vladimir, as Estragon is asleep, that Godot won't be coming, and that surely Godot will come tomorrow. Again? Yes. And at this point, Vladimir is, like, enraged. He's like, do I exist? Do you see me? Tell Godot that you saw me. You do see me, right? And the boy's like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I see you. Yes. And he's like, then go. And he lets him go. And the boy runs off. Huh. Estragon wakes up, takes off his boots again, claiming that they hurt, puts them back on the stage where they sat before. He walks over to Vladimir and he goes, let's go. As he said a thousand times before. And Vladimir shot down and said, no, we're waiting for Godot. But this time Vladimir says, yes, let's go. And then neither of them move. And it goes dark. And that's the end of the play. Oh. All right. Okay. What can it mean? <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot. There's a lot to decompress there. That's, yeah. that's a great question. What does all of it mean? The hats, the boots, the carrots, the tree, the mound. What? is it that Beckett was trying to convey in this piece? What's the question people have been asking since the play first premiered with little help from its author is what is this play about? No one knows for sure, but a lot of people have theories as to what it means, myself included. And that is what I'm super excited to talk about with you guys. So I asked you guys to read or listen to the play and you guys just heard me go over it again. So I want to know, what your initial thoughts were before Googling, before asking anyone when it was just you and the play, what do you think this play is about? Michael, go ahead. Oh, God damn it. Uh, (laughs) I'm buying some time here. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. So mine is a little bit of a dumb take that I don't actually think is right, but it's the only thing that I could think of. Okay. Uh, For me, it seems like an allegory for experience old age and aging. Ooh. So one of the big keys for that for me was that um, the loss of memory multiple times, mm-hmm. the loss of senses from um, Popo, what was his name? Pozo? Pozo. Okay. Popo. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
and the whole idea of like I don't know like I'm trying to think it's hard to explain even what I'm thinking about it um, there's so many confounding factors right you, you right. settle on one and then it's like well maybe it's it's hard so well this it started as like a joke idea in my head from uh them getting excited about erections okay <laughs> and, a 13 year old and then slowly you started finding evidence yeah exactly i worked backwards into <laughs> a real theory that you have which is interesting right yeah so like i don't know maybe the whole idea of like the hats are um like it's free thinking, but in the case of uh, of the the slave, it comes across as like either the things he's experienced that he hasn't been able to talk about, or it's the idea of um, like to, to me, it really reminded me of like a anxiety attack. Yeah, like His having monologue, all of these different. Yeah. Yeah, having all these different confounding thoughts that are all like eloquently presented, but are and are covering like heavy topics, but having them all come at once without any room for interruption for me was just like and they're in circles. Yeah, and thinking yourself in circles. Yeah, exactly. And so huh. maybe maybe it's not just maybe it's not just old age, but then it's also just an experience of the human mind, man. Interesting. What is what is life anyway, man? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> man. What's up? Existential dread. Yeah. All that. All right. Should I go ahead? Go ahead. Here's my idea. Yeah. Hi, hi sharks. Um, <laughs> so for me, I think this is more about maybe it's about God, right? Okay. Maybe maybe the waiting for Godot, right? Because that's the name of the play. If you take out the OT in that, it's just God. Okay. Because um, there's the symbolism of the sheep, but then the sheep herder gets beaten, and that's like not how, you know, not how the Bible says you take care of the flock, right? You don't beat the shepherd. Um, so, which that leads me to believe that this is hell. This is hell. Hmm. These guys are experiencing hell over and over and over and over again, kind of like Groundhog Day, if you've seen that movie. But they're forced to live this experience until they change. And if you're waiting for somebody, waiting for some man in the sky or waiting for the devil to kick you in the shorts every day, it's not going to happen because he never comes. So, you know, it's it's about man and uh, the body and the brain, Estragon and, and uh, Vladimir working together to become this one person, this, this human being with a brain and body. And you have to take it upon yourself to find meaning in life. That's what it means to me. You hit on a lot of stuff there. Sorry, that got deep. Which, yeah, I know you got, <laughs> got deep. <laughs> so close. Something that I just remembered now that you said the whole, like the God perspective, something I remember from when I was re- doing my research is that, um, in English, typically the name is pronounced Godot, mm-hmm. but in like the native languages, in like French, uh, and like whatever else it was originally written in, um, it's pronounced much closer to Godot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or in Kentucky, and it's uh, Godot. So here's uh-huh. a here's a question <laughs> that I have for you. Um, 
and later I will introduce a fun fact that uh, that I think it's fun. You might not, but <laughs> if if Godot is God, then why is it that they also mention God multiple times in the play? Yeah. I don't know. I look at this like a word problem in math class. Like they're sure. always gonna. It's a lot like these, that. They're gonna throw these confounding variables at you just for you to ignore them. They don't really mean anything, but they're maybe they're there nonetheless. Sure. Um, do they do they know Godot is God though? Oh, who knows? Yeah. Is Godot? Nobody knows. <laughs> is Godot a? Uh, is Godot maybe a pseudonym for God? Mm-hmm. Is he is he a a, a bigger man? Is he this a king? Is he a, ki- a queen? So what I you will know? say, what I will say is this: um, when first proposed this play, he was like, "I'm not going to tell you what it's about." Everyone's like, "What's it about?" Everyone started guessing while he was alive, and they were like, "Obviously, Godot is God." And the very first thing he said was, "Godot is not God." Damn it! That's the only thing that he confirmed. Is I'll tell you one thing: Godot is not God. Well, he, he's just saying that, right? I mean, and a lot of people think that. A lot of people think that people <laughs> figured it out too fast, and he wanted to yeah. keep the mystery, and he wanted Godot to be secret, and they figured it out too fast. A lot of people think that that's what happened. I don't. I think Great. he was. I think he was being honest. I think that Godot isn't God. I don't think God. God obviously plays a part in it, but I don't think that. God is any more relevant than he is mentioned. When they pray to God, when they ask forgiveness from God, that is when they're talking about God. But other than that, God has nothing to do with this play. Okay. God is a savior they look towards, but he does nothing for them. Hmm. And that's as far as it, it goes. So here are some things I, I want to throw on the table when talking about what I think this play is about and sorry if my audio lagged a little bit there because i was moving away from my microphone but let's start at the beginning of the play the first thing that we see is estragon move to a place where he's comfortable and where multiple times in the play he falls asleep which is the mound before he falls asleep he takes off his shoes and he lays on the mound and as he's falling asleep vladimir comes and wakes him up And he always complains, you keep waking me up. And he keeps sleeping on this mound. So let's start with the mound. I think the mound represents safety and comfort. Mound represents our home. This is my mound. So now the boots. The boots, after a long day, are uncomfortable. The day-to-day struggle of wearing these boots is uncomfortable. And at the end of the day, I just want to take them off. Yep. So I take off my boots. They don't fit. They don't feel right when I wear them all day. So I take them off at the end of the day. So at the beginning of the play, Estragon has gone to the place where he feels secure and comfortable. He's taken off his boots and he's fallen asleep. Which is funny because at the beginning of the second act, he puts his boots back on and they fit fine. Because the day has just begun. Hmm. I think the boots represent the day-to-day struggle that every man goes through. That the monotony of wearing these boots every day is painful, and you just want to take them off, but you always have to put them back on. Huh. Is that... I can see that. Yeah, is that like, you know, I have to get up and be a person every day? Kind of. 
Or so is that's it like mm-hmm. I have to get up and go to work every day because I can. <laughs> at the end of the day, there's nothing more than I want to do than not work. Right. <laughs> so that's just a couple of pieces of the pie. Um, Vladimir. I think Vladimir and Estragon represent all of us. Though I do think that it goes into the psychoanalytical part of Beckett, where I think it represents Vladimir representing our logical kind of cracking numbers, solving problems side, and Gogo representing our more emotionally driven, more touchy-feely human connection side. And as you said, I think that they make up one person. Yeah. Um, one but billion. that's not all that they make up, because they also, together, maybe if they don't represent one person, represent two people who need each other. Hmm. Because without the other, they're lost in a ditch, being beaten. They're confused and wandering and unhappy, and they only really are happy when they're together. Or miserable when they're together. They're, they only exist when they're together. And they know that. And they say that in the play. Hmm. It's like an old married couple. <laughs> With the bickering, too. In the play, they talk about... He asks him for a carrot. And he says he has a lot of... He had a lot of carrots, but now they're down to the last one. And they're arguing over whether a carrot or a turnip is better. And I think that goes into play with the friends that you make. You need each other. But as time goes on, you eventually start to argue over things. And I think that that's what the carrot represents, is the arguments. Because every time that the carrot is mentioned, these two buttheads, they argue over the Mm. carrots. So... Enter Pozo and Lucky. Pozo and Lucky represent this idea of... Pozo is this leader who commands and gives purpose to Lucky. And Lucky is exactly what his name implies. Lucky is lucky to have Pozo. That's why Lucky cries when he hears that Pozo is thinking of getting rid of him. Because Lucky finds purpose in Pozo. He finds reason to exist in the things that Pozo tells him to do. He doesn't have to think freely. He doesn't have to wear his hat because Pozo thinks for him. And though before there was a time where Lucky was more than just Pozo's slave, Pozo would rather just be his slave because it's easy. I think Pozo represents a built society. Pozo represents a group of people, maybe even a corporation, maybe some sort of a political stance. Um, Pozo represents belonging to someone who thinks for you, and Lucky represents those people you meet who just immediately follow the herd. Like, if Pozo says this is bad, Lucky agrees, this is bad. And when, when Lucky is told to think on his own, he has a panic attack. He doesn't know what to do. And he has all of these thoughts that rush him at once, because... He no longer knows what's real and what's not, what's true and what's not, because he hasn't thought for himself for so long. And it's funny because Estragon asks Vladimir to ask Pozo if Pozo is looking for someone to replace Lucky, because Estragon wants what Lucky has. He wants to be able to not think. He wants to be able to be led, but he can't find that. And that's what they're waiting for, is someone to step up and be that. They're waiting for Godot. They're waiting for Godot. While they're waiting for Godot, while they're waiting 
for meaning in life. They're waiting for their calling. They're waiting for what fate explains is their great reason for existing. They can't find it, and it never shows up. And right when they're about to give up hope, the boy comes. And the boy says, it's coming tomorrow. Tomorrow it'll be here. And I think that the boy is meant to represent the future. Because the children are our future. He's meant to represent the promise that if you stick through it, eventually things will get better. And the future will be better. As long as you stick together and you wait it out, Godot will come tomorrow. Even if he didn't come today, he'll come tomorrow. Now, it's, when you said that you were relating the sheep to God, I think that something that you have to kind of take into consideration is that sheep are used in more than just religious standings. If you're called a sheep, you're being led. A sheeple. <laughs> Exactly. No, and, and that's exactly what I mean. Wake up, sheeple. That, like, wake up because you're being led to the water. Like, you're not thinking for yourselves. The sheep are people who don't think for themselves. So if you're herding the sheep, you're collecting the people who refuse to think for themselves and refuse to find meaning themselves. Hmm. And they lean on you to find meaning. Now, goats don't give a fuck who's leading them. <laughs> they cannot be herded. <laughs> a goat exists. A goat survives. A goat is just there. You want to be a goat. And if you're a goat herder, you don't control your goats. You let the goats live, and you make sure that you take care of them. So yeah, Godot, or finding meaning in life, beats the people who are just in a flock and being led around. They will never find meaning because they never look for it. They just are like lucky they allow someone to lead them around because it's easy and they never find their true meaning or purpose but he doesn't so yeah Godot beats them he they never beat find the sheep, what they're looking for no he doesn't beat the sheep he beats the herder right the one who the one who is taking advantage of these people so truly Godot never actually beats the sheeple or the sheep I'm sorry no um no they're just they're just going about their lives having a good old time well, I think that you can understand that, like, the shepherd is the representation of the flock in sure. most cases. Yeah, so he doesn't beat the sheep, but you can you can bear to reason anyone led by him is feeling his pain. In some way, yeah. In some way. And they say that the brother is sick, the boy mentions in the second act. Uh, he says, my brother is sick. Sick of the beatings. Maybe not sick of, but just sick in general. He's ill. Oh. And that's because a society run under one idea where everyone isn't, isn't thinking for themselves and are just being led around like sheep is doomed to fail. And this is coming off of Beckett working from this idea of just seeing, like, Nazi soldiers who were just sheep. They were being led. They didn't know what they were fighting for. This kind of idea of not knowing who you are because you become a part of a group. And because of that, you are no longer an individual. And because of that, you will never find your meaning of who you are. Yeah. Mm. You could even get political about it and say it's communism versus capitalism or democracy versus fascism. It's those two polar opposites 
that are always going to be competing for one another. And I'd, I'd even argue Lucky might be an M- – no, not Lucky, but Pozzo might even be uh, an embodiment of capitalist ideals because he has this person on a leash kind of like how money is, right, to, to the working yeah. class. They're like, oh, yeah. yeah, just keep working a little harder. Keep working a little harder. I'm going to sit back here and, and do whatever. But then he, a lot he of, gets blind. The system bites right. him in the ass no matter what. Well, that's kind of the question of what happens when the system fails. Mm-hmm. Because now it's the dumb leading the blind. <laughs> I've heard that before. Literally, <laughs> it is the dumb leading the blind. When the system collapses, that's what you're left with. Mm-hmm. So when you ask what is Waiting for Godot about, what I think Waiting for Godot is meant to be about, is it's meant to be about this existential crisis of what am I supposed to do now? Mm. Now that I am here, now that I exist, there has to be more than putting on my boots every day and taking them off every night. There has to be more than the daily grind and questioning everything. There has to be more than leading around a slave or being a slave to someone. That's why Pozo wants to meet Godot. Everyone wants to find this one true meaning. Why do I exist? And the fact is, it may never come. Even if the future promises tomorrow the meaning will come, it probably won't. So what are you left with? Because this all seems really bleak, and I I realize that. But once you're left with this realization that Godot's never coming, you have the relationships that you built with the other people around you who also are going through the same thing. And you have the knowledge that they have. You're wearing their hat. You can think through them. You understand their pain. They beg for mercy from Pozo as he beats Lucky. Because they understand his pain. Yeah. At the end of the day, Vladimir has Gogo, and Gogo has Vladimir. And if they find meaning in that, in that relationship, they don't need Godot. And I think that's what Beckett was trying to tell us. Is that... Maybe there is no grand meaning. Maybe there is no person looking down upon us, judging if we're good or bad. Maybe there's no heaven. Maybe there's no hell. Maybe there's just earth. Maybe there's just this. So what are we going to do with it? Are we going to be led around like sheep, or are we going to be goats? Existentialism, there you have it. I think that's what Waiting for Godot is about. Yeah. Damn, that's deep. It doesn't have to be yeah. bleak, though. That's it's not a huge bleak opportunity. if you think about it. Yeah. Exactly. And once you realize this and you're able to overcome what Lucky fell to, why Lucky broke, it's this wall that you hit and either you make it through or you break. Once you make it through and you're free thinking, you no longer need that rope. You no longer need Godot. You're able to just exist. And you're not trapped anymore. You're free. And that's waiting for Godot. Damn. Oof. I honestly did not think... Like, I know you said it was confusing, but I honestly did not think that it was going to make me 
that like confused and that like i didn't think it was going to be that thought provoking yeah yeah hey welcome to entertain this a thought provoking podcast encapsulating <laughs> hey! all things entertainment he did it did it again get out there get waiting for godot take notes write a thesis on it i don't care just read it it's awesome it's great my brain's mush right now i picked this up in high school maybe seven years ago i've been thinking about it ever since you did that shit in high school oh yeah oh that's yeah that's way too much for a kid and back in high school, they were teaching us that they were teaching us that it meant God and like waiting for God or like waiting to die. And I used to have a theory that Gogo and Didi were Nazi soldiers and that the boots represented having that stance of being a soldier and not knowing if the boots fit, not knowing if you were a soldier or if you were willing to do the things that the Nazis wanted you to do. But waiting for Godot took place in this post-apocalyptic world where you were waiting to die and Godot was dying. You were waiting to die because they beat you everywhere else you went. You didn't understand why. And you were left in this existential moment of if I'm not, if I was brainwashed now that I'm unbrainwashed, what am I? Oof. Which is also a fair way of looking at it. That's why Beckett never told us what it meant. It's because it can mean whatever you need it to mean. That same theory that I just had applies to the stuff going on today. Because if I am brainwashed and I realized I'm brainwashed, then what is real? And I'm waiting to either figure that out or to die. And maybe you never do figure it out. Maybe you just keep finding little snippets, little pieces to the puzzle that you can finally maybe get close to assembling the entire board. Yeah. You can only hope. I forgot to mention that between the first and second act, it's fair to assume that if the tree has started growing leaves, that a significant amount of time has passed that Vladimir hasn't even realized has passed. He thinks all of this happened yesterday, but it could have happened years ago. What? Yeah, from act one to act two, and that kind of represents, like, you get lost in the mundane day-to-day, and you don't realize how much time has passed. You don't realize that you were in high school six seven years ago eight eight for some <laughs> yeah we're older you blink, and fine. then it's like <laughs> well here i am <laughs> yeah i know all of a sudden i'm on the downside of 20 and like all i really have to look forward to as far as birthdays goes 30 40 50 the yeah the milestones are all that matter yeah so that's what he's saying is if you don't look around and realize you might miss it, as one Ferris, Ferris Bueller, Bueller once said. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Cue the 80s montage music. <laughs> he well, <will> <laughs> thank you for entertaining my rambles of Waiting for Godot. I hope that I shed some light onto the beauty that is this obscure play written by an Irish Frenchman who got stabbed by a pimp and fought Nazis. Damn. <laughs> I feel wrecked. What a man, what a life. I'm wrecked what? at this point. What a play. Yeah. I can't do any deep thinking for the rest of, we'll say the week. No well, more. lucky for you, <laughs> you do not have Wait. to host our Quick This this week because that's Michael's job. Opa. Right. Michael, on to you. All right. Starting my timer. So I know 
kind of in our friend group that I am known as like the the D and D guy. Like if you go back to one of our first podcasts, that's of course the first topic I chose to speak about. Well, a new source book came out that has me very excited. Uh, this would be the Mythic Odysseys of Theros. Now, it seems a little weird because um, it seems like just a bunch of jarbled up words, but it actually means stuff. So let's go through it. We have Theros. Theros is not a typical Dungeons and Dragons setting. Uh, you have like Faerun, you have um, Dark Sun, you have Ravenloft, all these other settings. Uh, but Theros is not one that has really ever been talked about. That's because it comes from Magic the Gathering. Uh, so essentially what Theros is, is Theros is a, an interpretation of a magical fantasy world in the setting of Greek mythology. And Ooh. what's really cool about that, I know, <laughs> m me being like the little Greek mythology hoe that I am, uh, it makes me very excited. I love um, Hercules. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, so the whole idea is that typically in D&D, you are an adventurer going along, you level up, yada, 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 like a typical fantasy like RPG. Well, in Theros, the thing that separates it from these other settings is at the very beginning, you choose a god that you want to be the champion of. And you get certain benefits from that. Along with that, you can also get divine gifts that you start off with. So you end up being a lot more powerful at first level um, than you typically would be in any other setting. And the other thing that's really nice about that is every god has a personality. Every god has a different mythos. Every god has different tenets that they want you to abide by. And so what this does is it solves a lot of problems that D&D typically has. In D&D, for any DMs out there who have tried to get their party to be cohesive uh, from the get-go, it's very difficult unless you purposefully set the stage. Um, what Theros does is, by default it has your characters on a common ground. Uh, every single character is a champion of a god. Uh, and so there's plenty of things where you could take that. You could take it in the span of, like, they, these gods are collaborating to take, like, to rid the world of this disease or yada, yada, yada. That's for you DMs out there to make do with and to come up with. Um, but then you also have some really cool stuff that hasn't been in D&D before you get two brand new races that are very exciting. Um, one is the Leonin. A Leonin is essentially just, they're lion people. They're big lion people. Um, and then you also have satyrs. I don't know if that's actually the right, word, right way to pronounce that, but that's how I've always said it. So I'm going to keep saying it satyr. It's a little goat fawn-like people, like uh, Mr. Tumnus from... Uh, 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 what line the witch, witch in the wardrobe or go. bridge of terabithia a seda but wiser yeah <laughs> that sort of thing that's a line um. straight from hercules <laughs> oh yeah like pete yeah um but yeah and the thing that's also really cool is that you're actually race locked in the setting uh so there's no elves there's no dwarves because that wouldn't actually fit in this greek theme setting there's humans there are um the Leonin, the Satyr, you could be a Minotaur, you could be a Centaur, 
or you can be uh, I a can't guitar. remember the name of it right. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's like the little aquatic people. Uh, tritons. You can be a triton. Mm, I'm um, and what's really nice is that, like, while you are limiting player choice, you are much more easily able to um, build out the world in a realistic way. Um, but overall, the thing that I really like about this is it takes a lot of stuff from uh, D&D uh, and gives essentially a DM a lot of help in creating a really beautiful adventure and story with their friends to tell. And that is my five minutes. Excellent work. That was Thank nice. You much. You're I'm play very excited that. about that. Um, yeah. yeah, I desperately want to run a game with this because I love like Greek mythos and literature, and I want to bring you all into a game that comes from my brain. Heck yes. <laughs> we have, uh, just for our listeners out there, we have been keeping up with our weekly game where we introduced Nick to D&D. Um, mm-hmm. Nick, quick update. How, how are you liking it? <laughs> I'm still playing it. Uh, my character's getting into a whole bunch of uh, funny situations, I'd say. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm enjoying it so far. I look forward to Saturdays. There you go. Uh, and eventually, hopefully, once all of this calms down and we can all get together in person, we'll maybe live stream it. We have our Twitch set up. I would, I would sure like to, once everyone's comfortable with their characters and so on, we get yeah. down and dirty in the plot. Um, but for now, just know we are playing and Nick mm-hmm. is enjoying it. Um, that was almost 10 episodes ago that we mentioned starting that. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, we're so much older now. So much the leaves older. are on so the trees wider. now. Yeah. Talking about waiting for Godot, like adults. <laughs> the heck? Hey, this was our first play on the channel. Um, we did it. We've finally yeah. broken into live theater to slowly conquer our goal of encapsulating all things entertainment. Um, it's entertaining. It's another step in that path. So yeah. thank you so much for listening uh, and entertaining my ramblings, you two. That was my dog shaking her collar. <laughs> <laughs> that was deep. Yeah, it was I'm very glad good. glad we did it. All right, well, thanks so much for watching. See you. Bye. Listening. Did I say watching again? You said watching. Thanks for listening. Bye. Roll the music. (laughs) Roll the music. (laughs) This episode of Entertain This was produced, written, and hosted by Nick Mustakangas, Michael Savoya, and Alex Steele. Our theme music is Rush Bubble by Aaron Spencer. Tune in every Friday for new episodes. Thanks for listening.